Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We have decided to spend the summer in three mini-series throughout the Old Testament because we want to be people who are ready to wrestle with all of Scripture. These are the Scriptures that Jesus knew and studied and leaned on. This was, the Old Testament was Jesus's Bible. The New Testament wasn't written yet, and so these are really important. And often the church leans more on the New Testament, but we want to be ready to engage with all of Scripture. And so we know that these stories that we're reading now, while they seem very different in their uh, original context from where we live now, these were the stories that shaped the people of God. And many of us, any of you who are not born into a Jewish family, myself included, were Gentiles in biblical language. We've been grafted into this family story. And so these are our family stories. They shaped the people of God and helped them know and us know the promises and the character of Yahweh God, but they look very different and work differently than our New Testament books of the Bible. So we decided to start with our ancient scrolls and start with some of these timeless stories that we now know of as um, the stories of the judges in this Old Testament period. Today we're going to talk about Gideon, who is probably most well known for the testing of God with the fleece being wet or dry. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Again, I think it's around page 194, did we say? In your few Bibles if you want to follow along with the story of Gideon. It's uh, Judges 6 through 8. But before we get to Gideon, a quick reminder on how we got here as the people of God to this period of Judges. If you were here last week, please forgive the repetition. I'll do this quicker this time, but it's really important and since we don't always have everybody week to week, that we know how we got to the period that we're in now. So, A fast forward of the Old Testament, God has created, decided to create in the world a people who respect, uh, reflect God's character in the land. And so he starts out with this group, first Abraham and then Abraham's descendants. This little trio is known as the patriarchs, okay? This is the start of a family tree and with them, God creates a covenant. And he says, go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And he goes on to say that all of the nations of the world will be blessed through this nation that God will create through this family lineage. So this is basically God saying, I'm going to do something new through you and everyone on earth will eventually be blessed through it. And I'm making a covenant promise. And so a covenant is like a, 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 a... an arrangement, like a, like a promise to one another where God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And then the story goes on and we see that out of this covenant promise, we end up through the patriarchs with 12 tribes of Israel, this nation of Israel. And at that moment, there comes a famine and Joseph, one of the 12 sons of the patriarch line, gets um, sold into slavery into Egypt, right? But then he finds great favor and all the other family ends up coming to Joseph and to Egypt during a famine and they're all rescued. So Egypt starts as a rescue, which is amazing. But then the nation gets so big, the Israelites in 
Egypt gets so big, Pharaoh's like, this isn't a good thing anymore. We're going to enslave those people. Now the Israelites, the nation of God, is enslaved in Egypt until God sends now Moses to come in as his voice and to say, set my people free. This is known as Exodus, which is like the liberation of the nation. God liberates, and the nation all experiences that Oops, we spend 40 years in the desert. Fast forward from there after Moses comes uh, Joshua, who takes the people into the promised land. This land is the promise that they've had. They're now stepping into it as a liberated people, a land flowing with milk and honey and Canaanites, who are the non-Israelite tribes. Okay, here's where we are in the book of uh, Judges. Joshua dies, and we have no king. Now, fast forward, we end up in this period known as Judges. Now, we have to remember when we read these stories that we are presupposing that everyone in this situation remembers in their recent history, this incredible liberation that God, Yahweh, has provided from their slavery. They've experienced liberation from God, and they've experienced grace and relationship from the covenant promise and the establishment of this system of how do we live to reflect God very well, right? And so they have a recent cultural experience as the nation. So the judges are not like our courtroom judges. They're more like tribal leaders. And this tribe, you know, like a tribal chief, it has like more of a military edge to it, um, but, but also like a, a leader of the people in a given time. So the other nations that are listed through all of these passages that are sometimes hard to pronounce, um, they're all like other tribes, and they're warring for land and power over one another. So we get this sense that, yes, we are in the promised land, but it's kind of chaotic here. And so this is the, the nation of Israel trying to enter into those. And we see in Judges, twice it's repeated, in those days the Israelites had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But we know from the first five books of ancient scrolls in the Old Testament that God had established a covenant a relationship, a law, a way of living where God's self was supposed to be the king. And there were priests to mediate that divine presence with the humans. Like there was a whole system that we also know has been established so that God could lead these people. But we see in the books of Judges, if we read through all of it, and we're only going to, we're just doing three Judges. This is two out of three. We see a sense of chaos in the reality of living out this being the people of God thing. And so what we see throughout the book again and again is this cycle. And so we see, we start up at the top where the Israelites do evil. Yahweh becomes angry at their sin. He allows them to fall to the hands of their enemies. It's a natural consequence for their actions. They're oppressed for many years. Someone turns and they cry out to Yahweh for help. Yahweh raises a deliverer in this book. They are the judges to whom he gives the spirit of God for that purpose of rescue. The enemy is subdued. The land has rest. The judge rules for many years. And then we rinse and repeat and do the whole thing again. So this is the cycle that we see. Now, last week we talked about Deborah. And so what I'm going to do really quickly is show us where we are in this cycle of repeating between Deborah and where we start here with Gideon. So at the end of Deborah's song, at the end of chapter 5, she's singing, So may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. And the land had peace under Deborah's leadership for four 
40 years. And then we change to chapter 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Okay, so we see our cycle just went, whoop, here we go again. So we've also seen this cycle before. Remember, in the wilderness, these are the stories that you know you've been raised to know, this, not only the scripture, but like the historical oral account of these things happening not so long ago in your family's generational history. So we've seen a cycle of unfaithfulness by the people, and it seems to be linked, if we're going broad Old Testament here, right? Or actually, yeah, anyway, we see that there's like this continual forgetfulness on the part of the people towards God's continued faithfulness. It's like a forgetting cycle, but God keeps being faithful to God's part of the covenant. And now it's really tempting sometimes when we read stories from long ago to think, oh, those silly old timers, they didn't get it. But that's not what we're learning. As the people of God, we want to be humble enough to say, I sense a cycle of human tendency, very human, to be distracted by the next shiny thing that comes across the horizon and to forget what's behind us because we see whatever it is that's got us distracted. I always get struck by the lyrics in that song. I can't remember the name of it, but you know that song that goes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Like I feel that, that that's just human tendency. So let's not put this pattern back to Old Testament only. Because what we want to meditate on as we go through big picture cycles like this is a bigger observation. God's pattern of redemption every time the people return back Every time, God is faithful. And now, even now through Christ, this is like the end of the sermon in the middle, right? Even now through Christ, we feel it again. Every time we've wandered and we turn back, that's repentance, and we have to return again and again. And every time in this entire book, God's answer is, here I am. I long to be sought. I will be found by you. Turn and seek me. I will be found by you again and again. So that's our big picture cycle that we see and that I think still is very impactful every time to notice when we read stories like this. So let's go to Gideon. Gideon is a longer story, so we are going to enter into a Pillman paraphrase of Gideon's story as the judge over Israel. So again, the people were doing evil in the eyes of the Lord for seven years. They're given over to the Midianites. And so in chapter 6, verse 6, Midian had so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And an unnamed prophet is sent in. And so a prophet in this context is somebody who for the moment that is needed, the Holy Spirit works through a prophet to give, uh, they're a mouthpiece for God. They speak on behalf of God to humans, okay? And so this is what our prophet says. Listen to all of these verbs, speaking on behalf of God. I brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you. I delivered you. I drove them out. I gave you the land. Hear all of those actions. God is doing all of the actions here. And then going on, the prophet speaks for God saying, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. 
but you have not listened to me. This again is another thread that's again and again spoken throughout the history of the relationship with God and humanity. And so an angel comes now to this guy, like a totally normal guy just doing life stuff named Gideon. And he comes and he calls him a mighty warrior. Now we don't know, is that like a foretaste of what Gideon will become or is it utter sass on the part of the angel. I'm not sure that we get to know without hearing the tone, which is like the same reason that you shouldn't text in an argument. Nobody knows your tone. Same thing's true in the Bible. Is he like, oh yeah, mighty warrior? Look at you, because Gideon's not a big deal guy in his world. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest and I'm the least of my family. But the Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive, which of course feels like a super long shot for Gideon, right? And so Gideon replies, if I've found favor in your eyes, give me a sign. I want to know that this is really the Lord talking. So he says, stay here. I'm going to run off and I'm going to make us a feast. And so he does that and he goes off and he brings, sacrifices a goat. He makes a meal and the angel of the Lord touched the meat and unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread and the angel of the Lord disappeared. So that, like, remember, we're not just looking for hospitality. We're looking for a sign. That feels like a pretty good divine sign that that was the word of the Lord that was just spoken. So when Gideon realized that the angel of the Lord, that was the angel of the Lord. He says, alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He got his sign. So he builds an altar. He recognizes he's heard the instruction from the Lord. And then we go into a series of instructions from God and these sign requests from Gideon. And each one kind of ups the ante on the risk that's being asked of Gideon for what is to happen next. So the Lord instructs, tear down your father's altar to our that foreign god, Baal. And so Gideon is kind of scared of the people. So he does it, but he does it under cover of darkness. He does it at night. And so when the people wake up mad, he, you know, he won't have been caught red-handed doing it. But he does do the thing that was asked of him. So all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And he blew a trumpet, summoning them, the people to follow him. So now this is really important as well. And so in this time, again, like the spirit of the Lord could come upon somebody for a moment of a prophetic utterance, so they could be the mouthpiece for God. So too, in some instances, the spirit of God would be especially with somebody for God's purposes. Now, where we are now, we all who call Jesus Lord have the Holy Spirit living within us. And we know this, but at this time, that was not true. And so this was like a special anointing for a moment for God's plans and purposes. The verb here that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon uh, is suggestive to be like, to be clothed with. It means like a complete possession or covering. So it means like in this moment, when the Old Testament says this, the understanding would be like, Gideon is operating as the incarnation of God, not the Messiah, but like this is God took on the body of Gideon for this moment. And so that makes Gideon completely equipped for what is the task in front of him. So that was his certain sign. And what was he told to do? Go tell everybody it's time. Call the army. 
And so Gideon, with the spirit upon him in that moment, has the strength and the confidence to do that thing. And he says, come on, everybody, we're going to do this. But then Gideon starts to speak with God again. He said, if you'll save Israel by my hand as you've promised, look, I'm going to place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And that's what happened. And so he squeezed out the fleece, the land was dry, the fleece was soaking wet, bowl full of water comes, and his response is, don't be angry with me, but can we do that whole thing in reverse just so I can make extra sure that it really was you? And so he does. He asks for the same thing in reverse. Now I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet, and it happened. Don't be angry with me, but just to be sure. Now, that is clearly a divine sign. Something supernatural against the laws of nature, which is what that means, has just happened. And this gives Gideon so much confidence that he is ready to do what God next says, which is not only call the army, but now I want to reduce your army from 32,000 to 300. I believe that's something like a 90% reduction of the army that is going to do this thing. And so in chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord says to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel will boast against me that my own strength has saved me. That Israel would say, we're a really big deal. Israel needs to remain humble and stay in that repentant posture, depending on the Lord and not their own strength. And so in this moment, they decide we need to reduce this army. So how do they do that? The first thing they do is say, okay, everybody, if anybody feels scared, you can go home. And a bunch of people are like, that's me. This seems impossible. I'm going home. And then the Lord looks out. It's like, nope, still too many. Go and have a drink from this spring. And um, they look at how the people drink. Okay. So like if you're ever at the lakefront and you don't want to like get too close to the water fountain, like, do you do this? Or do you fill up your water bottle? Like what's your MO and how you take a drink in a public place? So the remaining army goes down and some of them scoop the water from the spring. You can ask Bill Jemison about the spring. He told me this morning, he's seen it in person. So it's like a real place still, and some get down and scoop, and others get down and drink it up, like, like you might see your pet drinking out of a water dish. I think it's okay for this scene to seem ridiculous, because this is how God decides who's gonna be the army and who's gonna go home. And that is okay, like it's that random of a scene that's going to decide who's on team Israelites. And so this is supposed to, I believe it's supposed to be like, that. that's ridiculous. And yep, because it's by only by God's hand that this is going to happen. And so now note, we're going to get one more sign because Gideon must be thinking like, I know I've got these signs, but like, this is a ridiculous idea on how this is going to happen. And so the Lord then says to Gideon one more time before the battle, if you are afraid to attack, this is really cool to me. If you are afraid to attack, go um, to the edge of their camp and listen, and you're going to overhear something that will help you. Here's why I love this. This one, Gideon didn't even ask for. This is just like, let me give you a boost, because I know this is a super tall order. So Gideon goes, and he overhears this person speaking about a dream where God has miraculously given victory to the Israelites, and he therefore has such confidence that he goes in with God's plan. What's God's plan? Take your torches, take some empty jars and trumpets and surround the camp and make some noise 
and sure enough, they like, I don't know, break the jars or something. They've got these torches around, so they must think there's not, I don't know what happens. Everybody in the center gets all confused and start infighting. Israelites win with trumpets, torches, and jars. It is supposed to be ridiculous, like as in supernatural, like as in only through the hand of God could that victory have come. It's a supernatural confirmation, and we've got this amazing victory that has just happened. But remember, Yahweh said, it has to be so ridiculous. That's me paraphrasing Yahweh, forgive me, but it has to be so ridiculous that only I could get credit unless you all start to say, look how cool we are. Remember that part? So now we go into the second part of the story of Gideon, you guys, and the voice of Yahweh is 100% absent for the whole rest of Gideon's story. Something has happened here, and I don't know why. At some point, the Israelites, Israelites say to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He does a couple things that really do act like a king. For example, he takes the vast majority of the plunder, bless you, from the victories that they had, which is a very kingly thing to do. Second, he grows for himself a family with concubines and harem. He has like 70 sons or something. That is a very kingly thing to do. And in case we're questioning if that really is kingly, he names his son, my father is a king. <laughs> He's doing kingly things, right? So what is this thing that's coming from his mouth versus what are his actions? What are we supposed to make of Gideon? He does this faithful thing. He follows this crazy war plan. And then he goes and does this other half of life that's like not listening to the voice of God and naming his kid, my father is a king. What, is he a good, faithful judge? Or is he a power-hungry, bad judge? Again, welcome to the book of Judges. And sometimes maybe we're asking the wrong questions. Or maybe I wouldn't say it that way. They're not trying. The author of Judges is not out to answer our questions of discomfort. That's not the author's purpose. So sometimes when we're observing Old Testament texts, we have to look instead at maybe different things to ponder than what we want answered. So was he a good guy or a bad guy? Am I supposed to do that fleece thing or not? These are the things we want to answer. So we're not going to do that. Instead, first of all, the observation from earlier. This is a humbling reminder of our human forgetfulness that we are all potentially subject to just by nature of being human. This faithfulness of God does not end. God still did what God intended to do through Gideon, and we still can feel a deep sense of gratitude today that this cycle hasn't gotten so old to God that God has abandoned all way. Instead, God said, I'm going to send you Christ Jesus. You will all have the spirit. Like, we are in such a great 
piece of the story in some ways, but we cannot deny the human tendency to be forgetful and to lose our cyclical plot line and to go after the shiny thing that has us distracted now. But remember, now in Christ, every single time we can return. So that's one thing that's just a humbling observation. Gideon started out super strong in some ways and was so faithful, and God did great things through Gideon, who then kind of maybe potentially one could argue got distracted by the shiny thing in front of him. And so that's just an observation that we want to do. But what we were talking about is rather than ask questions like, so was he good or bad? Like I need a box to put Gideon in. We decided we were going to ask different questions of these texts. And the question we've been asking is what do we learn about God and of ourselves from stories like these messy, real complicated human stories and the story of God. What do we learn? The thing that I get challenged with, with Gideon, is the concept of testing God. So you may come up with something different that you want to ponder looking at these ancient scrolls. I'm going to share where my heart goes, which is like, is that okay? I mean, God doesn't seem to be mad at Gideon, but that seems like a really cheeky thing to do. I'm not sure if that's okay. Actually, I remember in the New Testament, in the Gospels, there's a story where Jesus specifically says, don't test God. Like super specifically, Matthew 4, 7. When the, he's in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, he tries, the devil tries to tempt uh, Jesus with uh, power, prestige, and possessions, right? Those are like the three things that are temptation. And in one of those, Jesus just says, you shall not test the Lord your God. Well, he's quoting Deuteronomy, which is the book in the Old Testament where we're following the story of the people in those 40 years in the wilderness. God has supernaturally provided not only liberation, but miraculous signs and miraculous provision for food and for all of their needs. And in the midst of that supernatural divine provision, the people start to grumble and they want something different. And and that's the testing that they're calling about. They're like, there's been divine provision. You have been witnessing the supernatural participation of Yahweh God in your life and your grumbling. Do not test the Lord your God. And I think about this wilderness moment when Jesus has just come from the baptismal waters and we hear the voice of Yahweh the Father and the uh, presence of the Holy Spirit in the shape of a dove coming and saying, this is my son and I love him and whom I am well pleased, right? So we have an affirmation of identity. We have an affirmation of belovedness. We have just filled the cup of the Son of God with all of this divine provision of identity and belovedness. And then the devil comes against that very thing. And that's what's not to be tested, right? You've just been given identity and belovedness. And the enemy comes in and is like, test it. Test it and see if it's right. And that's when Jesus is like, no, do not test the Lord your God. But I think Gideon's situation is a little bit different than that, right? Because he comes with these multiple requests and it seems to be more conversational with God because now he hasn't been given um, this divine provision yet. He's just been told you're going to do this thing and he is sort of feeling like, is it you, Lord? I need to know if this is really you. I'll do it, but this is a tall order. Is this you speaking? And so I feel like when we look at Gideon, we have a different situation of testing that I would say is more like, 
like discerning the voice of the Lord in our lives. And that feels like maybe that's not something that is contrary to, that's not against what Jesus is teaching us. They seem different enough situations that I can look here and say, wait, he's not being rebuked for these testings. What does that tell us about the Lord? The Lord is so gracious and tender and repeatedly um, fostering this faith that needs to be built up in this man in order to go and do this huge assignment that God has for him. So God is clearly honoring these multiple requests for signs and we see his faith is being built to the point where in the New Testament book of Hebrews there's this place in chapter 11 where there's like the hall of fame for the faith people who had assurance and things unseen. Gideon makes the hall of fame list for faith and he's doing tests with a fleece and water like is that faith or is that questioning and I feel like the answer is yeah it's faith and questioning and that's okay that's what I see in this story is that this isn't a test so much as a remarkable story of God's faithfulness to confirm to this young man that it's his voice God's voice God's guidance so how do we take something like that and say, what do we do with that for today? And I think one of the beautiful things that I know it's not a direct application from the life of Gideon, but it's something I see for us as people now following the way of God, who for those of you who call Jesus Lord, you are um, a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will, will move and, and prompt you and guide you. What do you do now? Is it testing the Lord to say, Lord, is that the voice of you? Or is that my own motive? No, like we get to do that work now. And we may not do it the same way Gideon did. We don't need to all get out our Patagonia fleeces and put them in the front yard. And, you know, like we don't have to test that way. What do we do now? We all have beautiful access to the Holy Spirit. So what we do is we go right back to prayer. And we are already invited in to, as my friend calls it, the triune conversation when we are praying in the Spirit for clarity. And do you know what one of the most beautiful beautiful ways is that we can discern if something is the voice of the Lord. Lord, are you really telling me that this is where you're taking us now? That this is the task, this feels like a really big task that you've laid on my heart. And you want to know if that's really the Lord's voice? You guys, this is one of the most beautiful things that church community is about. The discernment and the collaboration of the people of God now, all with access to the Holy Spirit, discerning the voice of the Lord together. You guys, if this is one of the biggest, most joyful things that we get to do to serve one another and the Lord together is discern. This is why we want to give lots of opportunities to plug in with other people in prayer or in gospel community groups or wherever it is so that when you feel a calling, you can ask for community to help you discern because the Holy Spirit operates through the people of God still today very actively no fleece required. So I want to invite us to be a people who are not afraid to make big requests of God. We don't, get, we don't see Gideon being scolded when he says, is it really you? And the voice of the Lord wants to answer. And so we are not going to be scolded by asking, God, is this you speaking into my life? Number one. Number two, this is what a huge piece of being the people of God is now, that we get the honor and the privilege of doing that discerning work together in community for God's glory. 
for God's purposes in the people of God and in the world around us. So that's what I reflect on in the story of Gideon. And I would love to hear anything that you guys reflect on when you hear these timeless stories and think, wow, these are really different than studying through the book of Ephesians, which is where we just were. So I love to hear what you're um, learning and what you're pondering. And um, we're going to go and hang out with Samson next. So let me pray. Holy Spirit, um, there's so much mystery around you. And so I lean in on the truth of Scripture, the truth of the cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, um, that, the assur- that faith is the assurance of things unseen. And I trust, Holy Spirit, that we are gathered in the name of Jesus, and so you are here. I trust that our physical bodies are your physical temple that you delight to dwell in us and shape us more and more into Christ likeness so God as that work is happening in us and through us help us to be alert in tune and expectant so that we can be thinking how do we participate with this work that you're doing whether it's uh, taking on the um, the proverbial enemy, or whether it's living in a way that's countercultural, whatever it might be, God, when you're calling us to us uh, to it, help us to be strengthened by you for the task ahead. Help us to discern together in community where we are hearing your voice, and help us to be faithful on where we put our yeses, and when we have such trust in you, God, help us to grow as people who are enjoying the triune conversation with every yes and amen that we have to give to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.